We are in the midst of summer now. It is July. And one of my favorite summertime memories or pastimes is swimming at dusk. I was really lucky. We grew up with a pool and I would lay on my back kind of floating there and I would see all of the bats come out from their roosts at night. I loved seeing them flapping their wings overhead and eating the insects. They're so cute. Today, I have on a guest, this is our second guest on the Fancy Scientist podcast. It is bat expert Lisa Gatens. She works at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, and she has been studying bats for over two decades now. I promise this is an amazing episode. There are so many cool bat facts that I know you don't know about. Bats will surprise you in so many ways. But before we get started, I want to tell you about my beta group. This is my confusion to clarity beta group for people who are unsure about what steps they should take to become a wildlife biologist. So if you are just beginning or even just thinking about becoming a wildlife biologist, or if you are in the midst of your degree or have your degree, I am looking for people like you to sign up to be my founding members. I'm gonna have a webinar tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time to go over the details of this group. And you can go to fancyscientist.com and then that will convert to stephanieshutler.com. And if you do a forward slash, confusion to clarity, all one word, you will find the group and sign up for the email alerts. And that is how you can get the webinar information. If you're listening to the if you're listening to this in the future, if it's past July 13th, I know this group is going to be a success and I'll keep doing it over and over again because there's so many people out there who need help. They are just so confused about this career and yes, it is competitive, but you can absolutely get a job and I know the steps that you need now that I've gone through the whole process. So, I hope you will be able to join me tomorrow. Now let's get into it. Let's talk about bats. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. Before I start out the interview with Lisa, I just wanted to say that we are both here in North Carolina, so this might be a little bit centric to the eastern United States, and when we're talking about the Wildlife Resources Commission, that is our state agency here in North Carolina that handles wildlife issues, it manages wildlife. So depending on what state you're in, you will have to Google your state agency, they all come with different names, and talk to them for more information about bats in your state. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm so excited to talk to you about bats. Hey, Stephanie. Thanks. I am always happy to talk about bats, and so I appreciate you asking me. 
My very first question is why should we want bats around? Why are they important? Well, <laughs> the fact that they're fun. So all of the bats in North Carolina and most of the bats in um, the U.S. and North America eat insects every single night during the season. And I will probably answer most questions in terms of North Carolina, and then I'll try to remember to point out, you know, when I'm talking about other regions. So all of the bats in North Carolina eat insects. And every night during the season, so when they're not hibernating, anytime between spring and fall, they're out there eating insects. And each individual bat will eat half its body weight in insects every single night. And so they're literally removing tons of insects every single night when they're out foraging. And what this means is they're eating important insects that would otherwise cause tremendous damage to food crops that we eat regularly. They provide a tremendous service to farmers and foresters in cost-saving measures by consuming these insects, and it's a reduction in need of use of um, pesticides to control these insects. And some places have actually <laughs> employed bats for insect control. Large commercial pecan growers will have large bat houses out to encourage bats to eat the uh, insects that might harm the pecans. Every single night, they're out there eating all these insects. They do eat, people want to think that bats eat mosquitoes that bother us. And they do eat mosquitoes, but it's not their primary prey source. They're going to eat them if, if they present themselves. The big juicy malls are a lot more appetizing to bats than a little skinny mosquito. <laughs> so they will eat them and they do eat them, but they eat a lot of other types of insects that might otherwise cause us irritation or financial distress. Cool. And then uh, you and me were chatting a little bit beforehand, and uh, you mentioned about drinking tequila. What do, <laughs> what do bats have to do with tequila? I actually oh, have a gosh. blog post on this. Right. Everything. <laughs> so all of our bats eat insects, but in different parts of the world and in the southwestern part of this country are nectar-feeding bats. They are responsible for um, pollinating agave. They also will pollinate the giant saguaros in the Southwest and other night blooming uh, plants in those regions. And without bats pollinating the agave, we wouldn't have tequila. So the next time <laughs> you take a nice sip of a good quality bat friendly tequila and ask your liquor stores what bat friendly tequilas they have, then say gracias a Murcielagos. Yes, bats are great that way. I love them because tequila is one of my favorite liquors, especially margaritas. Oh yeah, and you gotta have a you gotta have a good quality one. And thankfully, the bat friendly tequilas are also good quality tequilas. But so that's just not that's not all they do. They don't just eat insects and pollinate these night blooming plants and pollinate agave. They have such interesting feeding strategies in different bat species around the world. There are some that are specialized to fish. And perhaps I think most listeners might know that bats use echolocation to find their insect prey and to navigate. And the fishing bats use echolocation to look for ripples on the surface of the water to help locate fish, which is terribly cool. So there are fishing bats, there are bats that eat frogs, some bats will eat other bats. And of course, some of the coolest ones are the vampire bats. There are only three species of vampire bats and they feed exclusively on the blood of vertebrates. 
they are found only from Mexico through Central America and Northern South America. They have such cool social structures. It's one of the few species, or they are um, some of the fewest species that actually show altruism. And that is that they will care for others in their colonies without any expectation for um, retribution, for something being done in turn. They will bring basically takeout dinner home to an individual that can't go out and forage for whatever reason. And this means they're sharing regurgitated blood. <laughs> they're very, very smart animals. They, gosh, they have exhibited learned behavior. There's a lot I could say about vampires. They're crazy interesting. But one thing that I think a lot of people like knowing about vampires is that there are compounds in their saliva that allows them to be so successful at foraging on blood most animals are not going to stand still and let something bite it and then lap up its blood. And the way they accomplish this is that their saliva has an, an anesthesia. So they lick and it quickly numbs the surface and then they don't bite and suck. Rather, they slice and lick. They have very sharp incisors, which are the frontmost teeth. And they make a, a little thin slice in the skin and there's a compound in their saliva that is an anticoagulant, which means it prevents the blood from clotting. So it flows freely and they're allowed to lap up all the blood that they need. Really cool thing about vampires is that because blood is mostly water and they're very vulnerable water, they're filling up on all of this water with some nutrients in it. And so they have very efficient kidneys and they actually pee while they're feeding to get rid of all that excess weight so they can then fly off. But the anticoagulant that's in vampire bat saliva has been used to develop important drugs for treating heart and stroke patients because of its tendency or its ability to prevent clotting. And so it has extended the treatment time or the treatment window post-stroke for a person to be able to gain full recovery. There's a critical time after the onset of a stroke to get a person in for treatment. And this has greatly extended that window that so it means that treatment for stroke is more successful now because of these drugs that were developed from these compounds found in vampire bat saliva. Wow, that is so cool. Yeah. I didn't realize they're altruistic either. That's a, yeah, that's a really cool. rare right. behavior in animals. Elephants are another species that are altruistic too. Huh. How about that? <laughs> so when, they, when they're finished feeding, then is it difficult for the animal's skin to coagulate again and start to clot? I don't know how long it takes for the clot. It's not permanent, of course, and it might continue to bleed for a little while after the bat is finished feeding, but it is eventually going to stop. It's not, yeah, it doesn't, it's not, they're not going to bleed out. Yeah, and people don't have to worry about getting bit by vampire bats, or do they? Not us. <laughs> <laughs> right, people, <laughs> people living there. Right. Well, they do sometimes get bitten, but that's, you know, there are easy ways to, to not interact with vampire bats if you are someplace where they occur. It's easy to know where they're roosting and it, having window screens is going to keep them from coming in your house. I'm really glad you talked about all of the diversity of bats because when a lot of people think of mammals, they tend to think of the large charismatic species, so like elephants, whales, bears, but really, most diversity in mammals is made up of rodents and bats. 25%, Oh, yeah, that, that sounds right. Yeah, there okay. are about 1,400 <laughs> species. And like you said, the only um, 
group of mammals that is more numerous and speciose, meaning having a number of species, are rodents. So bats are only second to rodents in terms of numbers and diversity. They occur on every continent except um, Antarctica. They even occur above the Arctic Circle. I guess it gets warm enough for them in their summertime, right? We are, yes. And it's interesting because we're learning more about some, in some locations, and it is, I think, location dependent, that bats can tolerate more cold than what we might have originally thought. Hmm. There have been some recent studies here in this state, in um, the coastal plain, for instance, tracking bats in the winter, and they're moving between roosts when there's snow cover on the ground. If it warms up enough for them to move, they might not move every night, but they do move throughout the winter. If it warms up just enough for them to go out if there are insects, you know that if you go out in the wintertime, if it warms up even a little bit, you might see a flying insect. And so in the coastal plain where the winters are a little less harsh or where they're milder, then there might be more insects moving and bats can and do move during the winter. We know this now. And then you had a, a cool fact that you told me a while ago about uh, bat moms. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and would you, do you want to share that? Yeah, sure. It's one of my favorite aspects of bat biology. Bats mate in the fall in temperate regions, including here in North Carolina. So bats mate in the fall. The females do not become pregnant until toward the end of hibernation. And this is an adaptation to allow the fetus to fully develop, takes 50 to 60 days for gestation, without having that added burden on the mother to get through hibernation while nourishing a developing fetus. She has to store up enough fat to get herself through hibernation. These babies are born in spring, around now, actually, some of the latest births are happening mid-July. So from mid-May through mid-July, bat pups are born. When they are born, they weigh, depending on the species, 20 to 40% of the mother's body weight. So this is amazing. Yeah. And so bats hang upside down to roost, right? And... So by their hind feet, and they have this piece of membrane that's part of an extension of the wing that runs between their hind feet, and most bats then also it runs between their hind feet and their tail. All of our bats have a tail. Not all bats do. All of the ones here do. And so they turn around and hang from their thumbs. They have very strong claws on their thumbs, which is at a at a bend in the wing. And they bend that membrane up. It's called the uropatagium. And they catch the pups when they're born. And then they can, so they scoop it up in that membrane, these giant um, babies that they've just had that weigh about 30% of their body weight. So that would be like a 150 pound woman giving birth to a 50 pound baby. (laughs) And so she catches it in this membrane, helps the baby move up where it attaches to a teat. And then she can turn back around and hang from her hind feet again. It's and so the woman would cool. be hanging from her thumbs, too. <laughs> <laughs> right. She's hanging from her thumbs while she's giving birth to the equivalent of a 50-pound baby <laughs> and catching it in the oh neck stretch between her legs. Yeah. So bat moms are really tough. <laughs> and so it's really cool. So out there on the landscape now are newborn pups that they're either flying now because they were born earlier in the season, or there are some that are still left in maternity roosts. And... They're born hairless and their eyes closed and they grow 
so quickly. Within a matter of a couple of weeks, they're able to fly and the mother begins teaching them how to forage. Most bats will leave their pups in a maternity roost and she goes out and forages and then comes back and finds her baby. And in these maternity roosts, there could be hundreds of babies packed in there and she finds her baby by, she knows it's scent. And if anyone who's ever had a baby also knows the sound of your baby crying. And so they could find their individual babies that are packed in this <laughs> tightly in this maternity roost and then um, nurse them. They grow so quickly. Bat milk is high in fat and nutrients and the pups just grow super quickly and are able to forage on their own before the end of summer. So they can then start putting on enough weight to get, hopefully get them through their first hibernation season. That's amazing. Yeah. I like it a lot. (laughs) And so bats, and we're talking about lots of different species here, but I would say as a whole, many species are, are declining and many are endangered or threatened. Right. Can you talk about some bat conservation issues? Like what are their biggest threats and yeah. maybe what we can do to help reduce those threats? Yeah. So globally, about one third of bat species are vulnerable. So that means they're either endangered, threatened, or are in decline. Generally, habitat loss and uh, degradation contributes to species decline of pretty much any species we want to talk about, and that's the same for bats. Pesticides have been a, a big player in this. The Pesticides that stick around in the, in, in the environment for a long time and other kinds of toxins um, that accumulate in bats because they're very, very long-lived. But the primary threat to bats in North America now is white-nose syndrome. This is a fungus that attacks bats during hibernation. It's described as a cold-loving fungus. It's a newly described fungus species, Pseudogymnoascus destructans. It was discovered in the hibernating season during hibernation of 2006 when bats would emerge from hibernation and try to go out and forage. And it was discovered in New York. So bats are waking up midwinter, January, trying to go out and look for something to eat. And of course, there isn't anything to eat on a 20 degree day with several inches of snow cover and they starve to death. What this fungus does, it's pretty insidious. It invades their skin and replaces bat cells with fungal cells. And just imagine if you've had anything, even athlete's foot or ringworm, you know that it can be irritating. And this is something that can cover large portions of their wing. It affects the unfurred parts of their bodies. And so you can imagine how irritating it would be. So they arouse from hibernation more frequently and try to groom it off. But also it just completely disrupts their ability to get through hibernation successfully. We generally say it disrupts their homeostasis. So saying it another way is it it prevents them from effectively hibernating and it just causes them to starve to death. They're dehydrated. That's another characteristic associated with it. So when they come out of hibernation, they're in really, really bad shape. Since its discovery, it has spread throughout all of Eastern U.S. and Canada, and is now in several Western states, 
and an estimated five to seven million bats have died from it. It's some locations where bats have hibernated in the past have seen greater than a 90% mortality. And wow. because bats return to the same hibernaculum or hibernating site every year, in some places we see some numbers increasing, but pretty much not. Because they're so long lived, they have the population grows slowly. They have a single most species have a produce a single pup a year and they live a very long time. So when 90% of the of a glo- of a local population has been eradicated, so you have a few individuals that might be reproducing a single pup every year. And of course, as we know, not all of those pups produced every um, summer is, is going to make it through their first season. And so it's just a really, really slow rebound. Like what we see in so many other instances is apparently there are some individuals that show resistance. And so, you know, there is a, a glimmer of hope in that regard. Some species have not been infected at all, which is super exciting because there's something going on there with their biology that makes them resistant. And uh, tree bats, most not all bats use caves. There's a group of bats that we refer to as tree bats because they hang out in trees. They might go into caves during the fall swarm when they're looking for a mate, but they don't use caves otherwise. And so they pretty much have not been infected at all by white nose. However, <laughs> the tree bats happen to be the ones that are long distance migrators. And this includes our largest species, the hoary bat, which has the greatest distribution of any bat species. It is the only bat native to Hawaii. So it is the only land mammal native to Hawaii. But this bat, the uh, hoary bat and other long distance migrators have, are the species that have been most impacted by wind farms. So that's another big threat to them. But that one is, we know what to do to fix that, right? We can mitigate for uh, wind farm usage during peak migrations, just like it's done for migrating birds. There aren't laws in place to protect migrating bats that, like there are migrating birds. So at least there's some hope. We know what to do to, to help that situation. White nose syndrome. I, I've said this for as long as I've been talking about white nose syndrome. Some of the smartest people in this country and, and elsewhere are working on this. And, you know, we're, we're going to try to figure out or try to find what we can do to make it better. But right now it's, it's not good. <laughs> it just isn't. So if you set up a bat house, it wouldn't necessarily help out these bats because they live in caves. Not necessarily. So I'm glad you asked that. What can we do, especially in light of Plano syndrome? So if you want to encourage bats to your area, not your house, <laughs> there are a couple things you can do. And putting up a bat house is one of them. And I will tell you the best place to get information on the best kind of bat house to use and the best placement for it, because they're not all created equally and where they're put matters. But go to batconservation.org. The web address is batcon.org. There's lots of really good information on bat house design. You can download designs and make them yourself if you want. You can buy them from them. There are other companies, Habitat for Bats. I got bat houses from them. Really, really good quality stuff. And they're Basin International certified as a suitable bat house or you know, good quality. Anyway, you, if you put up a bat house and encourage bats to use it, you're giving them a safe place for primarily maternity roosts. 
And one way to encourage them to use that that house is it has to be the right setting. There has to be a water source nearby and you want there to be insects. So you can plant native flowers and trees and other things that are going to attract native insects. So just like a butterfly garden, similarly, if you plant native plants that are going to attract insects, you're going to be helping the bats out. I think most people think that there are plenty of insects out there to eat and that's True, but we also know that we have seen a vast decline in the number and diversity of insects globally. I will link to a story. There was a news story out recently. I want to say 70% insects have declined, Mm -hmm. um, but I'll find that. But it it came out recently since I think the 70s that has been the decrease. And a lot of people talk about when they would take road trips or do long drives. And I'm not super old, but I remember this when I was young, that you would have tons of insects on your car. That's right. And, and now you you don't really. That's right. Yeah. You can drive around at night. <laughs> oh my gosh. I remember coming back from the beach and the windshield would just windshield wipers couldn't even do it because they would just accumulate so much. You'd have to stop every so often and actually clean it off with a squeegee. And that's just, it's just not the case anymore. I remember when I was a child, we'll take this little trip down memory lane, sitting on my grandparents' porch and at another place since I've been an adult and seeing not tens or hundreds of lightning bugs or fireflies, but thousands of them. And they would just rise up out of the fields. And when we see a few now, it's super exciting. So yeah, that is a big issue. So those are some things that you can do that are going to help, but they're not going to solve big issues. And another really real way that you can help is to follow cave closures, um, not go into caves. There are no caves open. I don't think anywhere in the U.S. now on public lands to recreational caving because of white nose syndrome. They've been closed in the East for a very long time. When you go to personally owned properties that have commercial caves and there's one in this state and probably lots of states have those commercial properly privately owned caves if they don't have some kind of preventive measure in place ask them about it they should at the very least have a tub that you step into to disinfect your shoes that you're wearing Mm. because we can transfer the fungus and get attached to our, our clothes and shoes and stuff yeah yeah And another thing you can do with any species is donate money. Like as Lisa Um, suggests, they're searching for a cure for white nose syndrome. And would you say Bat Conservation International is the best organization to donate to? Yeah, that's, that's a real good one. A lot of people are scared of bats and they don't need to be in terms of like bats attacking you or getting your hair. That's a big myth. But of course, you shouldn't touch a bat because they can transmit diseases. So can you talk about what people should do, maybe if they see a bat around their home or if there's bats, if bats seem to be living inside their home or living in buildings, what, what precautions should they take? Should they just let them go? Yeah, sure. So I love bats, but there are reasons why I don't want them living in the house, Right. So one of the main reasons is the accumulation of guano, which is a fancy word for bat poop, similar to bird droppings. 
it can play host to the fungus that can histoplasma, which causes histoplasmosis. If you breathe in the spores, for some people that can be a more serious issue. Mostly they're very mild symptoms, flu-like symptoms, but for some people who are vulnerable, then you, know, you don't want to risk being exposed to histoplasmosis. As far as the disease issue and bats, people always associate rabies with bats and that's real unfortunate and I would like to know how that got started. Like any mammal species, bats can carry rabies. However, the incidence of rabies in bats is extremely low. One issue with rabies in bats and with some other viruses is that bats can be carriers and never be symptomatic. So that is a concern. If you look at the percentage of bats that test positive for rabies because they've been submitted to, in North Carolina, it's our state health department. If you look at the percentage of bats that test positive for rabies out of the ones that get submitted for testing because of some humor, human interaction, because it was found by someone's pet, there's a greater percentage of bats that test positive in the health department. And the analogy I like to use is if you sample the number of sick people in the hospital, it's a far greater percentage than the number of people in the general population. So yes, of the bats that are submitted for testing, yeah, a lot of them come back um, testing positive for rabies. I, because I handle bats in my job, I'm a trained professional. I handle them with care in such a way to protect both them and me. I had my pre-exposure rabies shots and I get tested every two years according to the health department guidelines to make sure I don't need a booster. I've never needed a booster. And I also wear gear or the pro proper clothing, what we now refer to as PPE to prevent me spreading, for instance, white nose spores that might be present on a bat that I handle uh, between one bat and another. So there are lots of safety measures in place. So because bats can carry viruses without becoming symptomatic, we know that they have been intermediate hosts in some other important viruses that have made it into the human population. And there has been some blame or some suppositions that COVID-19 was traced to bats. I'm not a virologist and I'm not an epidemiologist, but what I've read and how I understand it is this. The COVID virus that was isolated in bats that is most similar to COVID-19, it is what, 96% similar uh, genetically, which is, that's very, very similar. However, if you consider that humans are 98% similar to chimpanzees, then you can see that that's still a huge difference. So it is most similar, the, the, this virus that's causing this pandemic is most similar to a virus that was found in bats. It isn't necessarily that it came from bats. And if it did, there were intermediate hosts. And it's been in the process of making these changes from this virus in bats to humans long before it became an issue. Because it does, this, these mutations don't happen quickly. These changes um, don't necessarily happen quickly and move through different species rapidly. 
so this has been something that's sort of been in uh, works for a while. And also, for whatever reason, people think bats are scary. They fly at night, and just the way they flit around, they are, they're like little shadows. If they do get in your house, it's almost like this little shadow flitting around. And we just don't, we, the big we, don't know that much about them. So if you do have bats, like say living in your roof, but not inside your home, like they can't get inside, do you still have to have them removed? And if so, like who would you call to help you with that? Mm-hmm. Right. So like in an attic space? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Again, because th- then you can have the accumulation of guano and there are just reasons why you don't. Plus when they come and go, this is going to matter to a lot of people. They might stay in the out there. They can get in very, very small spaces, right? And they can find those small spaces. They can detect wind movement and changes in temperature. That's how they find caves. So they can find these teeny little holes that allow them to get in and out of your attic space or in louvers or something like that. There are reasons why you don't want to just let them live in your attic. There are ways to exclude them. Now is not the time to do it because, like I said, this is maternity season. And if you were to find where they're going in and out and plug it up, you might be blocking babies inside. And so you definitely don't want to do that. You want to wait until after the end of maternity season. Also on Bat Conservation International's website, there is information on how to do exclusions yourself. In my position, I'm not allowed to recommend any entity or business to do such exclusions. I would just encourage people to be very careful. There are some unscrupulous business people out there who, if they come to you and say, I know of cases where people have had um, birds in their chimney. Bats hardly ever use chimneys. And so when people say, I think I have bats in my chimney, and they call someone and they go, oh, yeah, you're, you've got an infestation. If people use the word infestation, that should be a red flag. <laughs> Most people aren't going to have enough bats living in their attic to warrant it being called an infestation. So just be careful. And if they say it's going to cost you 10 then you go, you know what, I'm going to get, I'm going to see if I can get a different quote and then look elsewhere. I know the Wildlife Resources Commission has some guidance, some guidelines, and they might actually have some companies that they're able to recommend. Just, just be careful. I would say check with Wildlife Resources Commission to see if there's someone that they can recommend to um, help remove bats. And So again, this would be a good time to put up a bat house. If you're kicking them out of your attic, you want to give them a good alternative. They're going to stay in the area. Bats are very loyal. They have what we call roost fidelity, both for summer and winter roosts, which are going to be different. But if you have bats that use your house in the summer, when they leave in the fall to go wherever they're going to go to hibernate, you go, okay, well, they're gone. The issue solved. If the entranceways are still there, then they're going to come back they will always return to their roost. So winter, late fall after they leave for hibernation is a real good time to seal those up. You can exclude them once once pups are volant, which means they can fly. And you can do one way, you can put up one way devices so that they can get out at night when they go out to eat half of their body weight in insects. And, but they won't be able to get back in that night and they'll just find an alternative roost for the rest of the season. And then you can, seal them off either yourself or hire a good company to do it. But that's when you want to do it. And there's really good uh, guidelines on uh, BCI's website. And you alluded to them being harder to study. Can you talk about how you do study bats? Oh, yeah, thanks. Gosh, bats 
are so much fun to study. I said that they fly at night. There are some diurnal or bats that are active during the day. And those are in the old world. Those are old world fruit bats. All of the bats that occur here are nighttime flyers. They're nocturnal. So we, there are a couple main ways that people study bats at night now. We use acoustic detectors. Bats emit these ultrasonic echolocation calls and also social calls. They talk to each other in at this frequency that we can't hear. And so there is the, these really cool devices that allow us to pick up those calls and then upload them to a computer and see what they look like. You can graph them. It's like a sonogram. And each bat species has a unique call. They look different from each other, just like bird songs are different from each other. We can identify bird species by their song. So we can also identify bat species by their call. And this is really cool. Bats that have a very broad geographic range have dialects. So, you know, our Southern bats might have a Southern accent. That's so cool. Same, yeah, right? And the bats, the, the same bat species that occur somewhere else is going to have a slightly different dialect. Anyway, so that's one way. And it takes a lot of uh, data and a lot of, of data storage, you know, and some good expertise in learning how to identify them. And the really cool thing about using bat detectors and the programs that help analyze them, they were all developed by bat biologists because there was a need for this. Is that not the coolest thing ever? There wasn't some computer guy who was like, I'm going to make this thing. Computer guys didn't know it was a need. These were developed by bat biologists. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So, but, and what I primarily do is misnet surveys. We also go into roosts, like we'll poke our heads into hollow trees, which is fun. You never know what you're going to see. And if they're big enough, we go inside them. And that's a lot of fun. We have erected artificial structures in different locations in North Carolina, and we monitor those periodically, like yearly or so. We will check these to see what the uh, those colonies are doing. We are, are monitoring a colony that roosts in expansion joints of a bridge, and we net those every two years and band them. But let me get back to misnetting. So we put up these fine mesh nets, which are like, uh, they're made out of nylon and they sort of look like a hairnet. If you see people working in a restaurant and the, the line cook should have a hairnet on. So that's sort of what they look like. And we erect them between poles and they can come in various sizes and we can put them together and stack them so we can make them very high. We will do doubles or triple nets that way. And we put them in places where bats are likely to fly. So, Often that's over a stream or on a trail because most bat species like us are going to navigate, you know, we're going to walk in an area that's easier to walk instead of walking through very dense vegetation, right? And so bats do the same thing. They're going to fly in these pathways that they're used to using. And they're also out there foraging. It's not just how they get from point A to point B. They're eating insects that are coming up off of those streams or flying along on those little forest trails. And so, and we look for good places where there's lots of overhanging limbs where we can put up our mist nets and basically fill that space. So when a bat's flying along, it hits the net and then we go and get it out. We check the nets like every 10 minutes throughout the night. We open them right at dusk and run them for at least five hours. And and then check them periodically. Like I said, every 10 minutes throughout the night, we don't want a bat to get tangled. We go get it out, weigh it, measure it, record lots of important information on it. Sometimes they will get 
a band with a unique number that we put on their forearm, which is part of their wing. Sometimes we swab them to test for the presence of white nose spores. We don't expect them to be present in the summer, but we don't know this for sure, so we'll swab them. We make lots of observations on them, and then we turn them loose. So I will talk a little bit more about my personal experience with this and why I think it is such an amazing thing to get to do. I, every time I do it, okay, that's an exaggeration because sometimes it's miserable out there. <laughs> but I feel so lucky to be able to do this. It's so much fun. If you walk along a trail through the woods and you're hiking during the day and you're walking along with your dog or whatever, and you see things and it's nice and blah, blah. If you come back to that same place at night, it's going to look different. It's going to smell different. It's going to sound different. And there are different things out there using it. And it's just being out at night in the woods, in a swamp, on a river, on a stream. It's just a very different experience than doing the, being in the same place during the day. And it's just so much fun. And when I said sometimes it's miserable, it is. The best bat nights uh, when we have the most success in catching good diversity and high numbers. And, you know, we don't want to be out there and have several nets up and not catch anything. That's not a fun night, but the best bat catching nights are generally the most miserable. They're incredibly hot and humid and there are lots of insects flying around. So while we're concentrating on getting a bat out of this net, we have a headlamp on that means in our face, in the light of our headlamp, is a swarm of insects. And we're, you know, we're getting bitten while we're doing this by insects, horse flies and mosquitoes, especially in the coastal plain of North Carolina, where there are so many mosquitoes. And it's just brutal. And at the end of the night, it's still such a worthwhile thing to do. I don't want to get bitten by mosquitoes, but I'm so willing to pay that price because it's it's a very rewarding thing to get to do. Plus, I get to see up close and handle these things that most people don't. And so I think that in and of itself is a huge reward. And they're adorable. I haven't even <laughs> talked about that yet. <laughs> this is me interrupting for a minute. I just wanted to mention that with COVID-19 going on, there's currently no bat research going on in terms of handling the bats until we understand the virus and the transmission completely because we don't want to put human lives and bat lives at risk. I also wanted to add a fun story. There's a big myth that bats try to fly in your hair. And as Lisa was mentioned, as, and as Lisa mentioned, they set up mist nets along trails to try to catch bats. And the bats use these trails just like just like how people use trails. I had this experience in India working with teachers there. We were setting up camera traps near dusk and we were using this trail system in this little patch of trees. And we were setting up our final camera trap. The sun was setting and all of a sudden all these bats came out from their roost and they were flying like crazy on the same exact trail that we were using. They got so close to us, literally inches from our head. And I have an amazing photo of one of my Indian colleagues with a bat, actually two bats, just really close to him. So they're just trying to get insects around you. They're not going in your hair. They want to avoid you. And with their echolocation, they are really good at avoiding what they want to avoid. 
So there are, North Carolina has 16 species. A lot of them look an awful lot alike. All of the bats in the genus Myotis, they're small brown bats. However, one of those is one of my favorite, the small-footed bat. It's our smallest bat that we have. Oh my God, they're crazy cute. I just get stupid when I get to handle them, which isn't very often. They're limited to the mountains in North Carolina. They're so cute. And they don't know they're little. They think they're being real badass and they fuss and like squeak and go, oh, I'm going to bite you. And they can't because they can't open the mouth big enough. It's funny. They're adorable. I have nicknames for lots of bats. Red bats, which are one of the most common bat species and one of the tree bats, so not affected by white nose. They're gorgeous animals. I call them flying monkeys. They have these little monkey faces. They're so cute. The people in Georgia, the bat people that I know there, they call them sky puppies. I have a sticker on my water bottle that says save the sky puppies. They're, I love that. They're they're just so pretty, and they have different personalities. Different species have different personalities. You know that free-tailed bats and uh, biggered bats, Rapidesque's biggered bat and Virginia biggered bat, which is one of the federally endangered species that occurs here. They're very docile animals. When you hold them, they're not really going to fuss at you too much. Big brown bats are never going to stop fussing, like ever, <laughs> the whole time you're trying to do something with them. They're just angry with you which is understandable. I mean, you know, they're flying along and all of a sudden they're not. And then here's this thing holding them and <laughs> turning them over. And like, if their belly looks fat, we, <laughs> we check it to see if they're pregnant. So we palpate the belly and just imagine, you know, Yeah. I always say it's like being captured by aliens. Yeah. Um, is um, it hard to get them out of the mist net and uh, handle them? It can be. So one reason we check the net so often we don't want them to get tangled. Some bats are really good. Red bats are notoriously good for landing on the net and they just hang there. And then they can actually just take off and fly from the net, which is real annoying. You get up to them and you're getting ready to grab them and boom, they're gone. Big browns will chew through a net in seconds. And so this is why we have to check them quickly. And some of them, when they hit the net, they just start fighting because they don't know what's happening. It's like a giant spider web. And so they start fighting and the more they fight, the more tangled they get. But People have their techniques, and so it's like first in, last out. They're, they go in head first. You've got to free the butt in first and get all, all of those prickly little claws on their feet, their hind feet, all of those claws just grab the net. And that sharp claw on their thumb, it can just grab the net. And never mind the fact that most of the time they're also chewing. And you have those long, fragile wings that you have to work the net around from. It's It can be tricky sometimes, but it's not – once you do it, once you get used to it, especially if you have – good mentors, then you just learn how to do it. People always ask if bats echolocate and they can see, by the way, they're not blind. They have good vision, but however, they're flying around at night and they are using echolocation to do this. Then why don't they, why do they get caught in the net? How is this effective? And if they're using this stream or a trail or whatever as a pathway, they're not looking for the net. This is the route that they take every single night. They don't expect there to be an obstacle in front of them. So they're not, they're not necessarily echolocating. You can see bats fly up to the net and then swerve. So those bats are actively echolocating. And <laughs> so we do see them fly up to and miss the net, which is kind of fun. Also, it's frustrating, but it's also cool because you're like, all right, you go, girl. But the analogy I use is if you get up at night to go to the bathroom, you don't necessarily turn on the light because you know where you're going. You don't expect there to be an obstacle. So if someone wants to trap me, all they have to do is put up something between my bedroom and the bathroom at night 
and they're going to effectively trap me because I'm not looking for it. I know how to trap you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's really cool. I actually thought it maybe had something to do with the material of the nut that they couldn't detect it. No, they can. And so that's another thing. They're not the only mammals that echolocate. And I think everyone knows this. Most people know that dolphins and whales also echolocate. Rodents can echolocate. Shrews echolocate. Bats happen to be really, really good at it. And they can detect something the width of a human hair. They know if it's stationary or moving. They know the direction of movement. They know if it's a prey or non-prey item. This, this is how much they can identify by these rapidly bouncing back echolocation signals that they use to form a picture in their brains. So they're really, really good at echolocation. They definitely can detect the nets. And sometimes <laughs> you'll see them fly up to the net and turn around and go back a few feet and then come again like, oh, it's still there. Like they just kind of go back <laughs> like, what? why are you still in my way? Kind of fun. <laughs> That's funny. My last question is, uh, you talked about your research, and I like to talk about citizen science a lot, which is Mm -hmm. research that people can get involved with themselves. Do you know of any citizen science projects involving bats so people can study the bats around them? Yeah, a couple, and there may very well be more. I'll tell you about a couple that I know of for sure, and then other routes that people could possibly look for. So one is called Bat Detective, and this is an online bat call identification project so people can just log in and look at bat calls when you set out echolo uh, or bat detectors rather you get a lot of clutter noise like insect calls cicadas those show up too and so one of the things people can do is just say is this an insect call or is this a bat call and then i think there's even some guidance to to make your best guess as to what based on characteristics of the call on what species or what species group it might be. So that's one. And then there's another one that's part of the NABAT monitoring program. The, wildlife, the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission has used volunteers in this before, and I think they're still doing it, where they have driving transects. You can sign up to participate, check out a bat detector, mount it to your car, and drive an assigned route following their guidelines to pick up uh, bat calls that are using that route. So those are a couple that I know of right off. I know that a friend of mine was doing pool surveys a couple years ago, so there might be something like that. If you have a pool, uh, report whether or not bats are drinking from it, because they're going to use any water source when they get up at night. They've been in the super hot roost all day, and just like us, one of the first things they do when they wake up is go to the bathroom and get a drink of water. And so bats do that too, which is why it's important to have a water source near your bat house. I assume the chlorine's bad for them or do they not drink enough that it they, probably yeah, makes they, a difference? They probably don't drink enough that it's going to hurt long-term. And that's not typically not the only water source that they have, right? It might be one that they use, but hopefully they're using other, drinking other water too. How long do they live for? You mentioned that. All all of the bats that live here are quite small. Our biggest bat might weigh 30 grams. They're not very big. They're maybe mouse size, not rat size, mouse size and smaller. Okay. They're very small animals. They live, we, some of the longevity records that we have based on bands, because like I said, we, when we catch them before we release them, we'll give them a uniquely numbered band. And by retrieving banded bats, 
we have two of the longest lived records based on band numbers. Um, we know that bats live more than 30 years. I've had bats that I've banded that have been recaptured either by me or by other people um, 10 years apart. So that's cool. Wow. Um, yeah. But so they're very, very long lived in comparing them to mice, which live a year or a year and a half. It's yeah. a, a completely different reproductive strategy. They live a year, year and a half and have all the babies that they possibly can and go, oh, you know, good luck, get out there. And it's a different strategy for bats where they reproduce slowly, invest a lot of care in their offspring. 30 years is a long time for something that size. And so right. there's a lot of research also looking at that because they have something happening genetic repair wise that allows them to be so successful in that uh, term, you know, in that regards living a long time. So cool. yeah, that is really cool. Anything else you want to mention before we end? If you see a bat flying around at night and I see them in my yard every night, be grateful for them. You don't have to be afraid of them. They're not, if a bat does come near you, but if it seems that a bat is coming near you, then it's likely trying to get an insect that is also near you. Having bats around is, is, it's a good thing. They're doing us a tremendous service just by doing what they do every day. I think that, and this is a real common thing, maybe it's just human nature and how we look at nature. We, I think we tend to look at it in terms of how it's either potentially harmful to us or how it might benefit us. Like what, what can I get out of this? Or is this something that I should be afraid of? And I guess that that is human nature, but it's maybe not the best way to look at anything in nature. In my opinion, bats have just as much right to exist as anything else. And they're out there just doing their thing. So I would like for people to appreciate them for what they do. So your closing words would be bats. They're a good thing. Right. Quoting, <laughs> quoting Martha Stewart. Or she yeah. says, it's a good thing. Yeah, it's a good thing. They are. I'm a, they are. Well, thank you so much for being here. It was so much fun to talk bats. And oh my gosh, they're such amazing animals. They really are. Thank you guys so much for listening. I had so much fun talking to Lisa. Thank you again so much, Lisa. And I have some fun videos on the YouTube. I have a bunch of wildlife that I saw from the my, from Kinabatangan River, which is a river cruise I took in Borneo, Malaysia. And I talk about it in present tense, but I was there last year. I had a job, a full-time job while I was doing this. So I'm, I'm backlogged a little bit, but I love going through these videos. It is so much fun to revisit my experience in Borneo. And I have a lot more fun videos of all the animals and nature that I saw in Borneo. If you are interested or in a career in wildlife biology, there could be a lot of negativity about it because it's really competitive. But I want to assure you that you can absolutely get a job as a wildlife biologist. It's really all about getting the right training, the right experiences, and the right skills. So I have a motivational video for you on YouTube. And I debunk just some of these 
rumors and worries about not being able to find a job. You just got to know what you're doing. That is the key to it. So check those videos out. Thank you guys so much for listening and be nice to each other. Be nice to animals. And I love hearing from you. So please send me a message. Thank you so much. Bye.